South African runner Castor Semenya is a two-time Olympic champion and one of the fastest female sprinters in the world. But throughout her career, she's been hounded by questions about her sex. Here's a Nike ad featuring Semenya from 2018. Will you prefer I hadn't worked so hard? Or just didn't run? Or chose a different sport? Or stopped at my first steps? That's too bad, because I was born to do this. Two years ago, a new rule required Semenya to take medication to lower her testosterone levels in order to compete in the races. Sports has this way of reinforcing our binary assumptions about gender, when in reality, we know that both gender and sexuality exist on a continuum, not a binary. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, a look at sports through a Black feminist lens. Later in the show, the infamous basketball game between Team USA and Russia at the 1972 Olympics. But first, from Colin Kaepernick to LeBron James and Maya Moore, professional athletes have been using their platform to advocate for racial equality like never before. But it's not just the pros who are speaking out. College athletes are finding their voice as well. Here's With Good Reason producer Matt Dera. Haley and her sister Myla are student athletes at the University of Virginia. Myla plays lacrosse and Haley's on the rowing team. They're twins, but only in the strictest definition of the word. Well, Myla and I, we are twins, but we're very different, I think. Yeah, we're really different. They say they never planned to go to the same college. It just sort of fell into place. Actually, it was, there was a camp where it was a rowing camp and a lacrosse camp at UVA at the same time. time. So I went to the rowing camp and Milo went to the lacrosse camp. She was already committed, right? You were already committed. And I wasn't committed yet. Were you? I don't know. I don't know, but we were, we were at UVA at the same time, and um, it just, like, worked out. Myla and Haley had both finished their first season on their respective teams. They were heading into the offseason excited for the future. But everything changed that summer. I remember the exact day that I saw it on the news. Good afternoon. We're coming on the air now with breaking news and the killing of George Floyd, who died on... And when they showed the video... There are new developments in the death of George Floyd, the unarmed black man in Minneapolis. We were in D.C. We were at our mom's college friend's, old college friend's house, like we call her Aunt Hope. We were at her um, apartment in D.C. and we just turned on the news. I saw the video and I was completely distraught. It like, it hurt to watch. It was actually hard for me to watch, um, first watch the video. I didn't watch it when it came on the news. Um, I didn't really want to. It's just, you know, disheartening and um, not even disheartening. That's just like not even, it's like it would be an understatement to say that, right? But it's definitely, you know, motivating for our generation. You know, what can we do as athletes who have a platform? How can we, you know, do our part? Then an idea came by way of their mother, who was at a Black Lives Matter protest in Washington, D.C., She called us and she said, it's such an important time in history right now. And um, we can use our platform for athletes of all sports, all ethnicities, all races, to voice your opinion and voice your support about the Black Lives Matter movement. They decided to create an Instagram account called Athletes for Black Lives Matter a place where collegiate, professional, and former athletes can share their stories and support the Black Lives Matter movement. Hi, my name is Angie Benson, and I'm a goalie for Virginia Tech Lacrosse. My name is Akil Abdullah, 2004 Olympian in the sport of rowing. My name is... So far, they have dozens of video submissions. All Black Lives Matter. I stand with athletes for Black Lives Matter. It's become their passion to empower athletes and inspire change. 
as athletes, when you're on a team, you know, it's not about what your teammate looks like or about like, you know, what they believe in, what their political stance is, what their major is. It's like, we all come together with one goal to play. So I think it's like, it comes easy to us to like come together, no matter your stance or your like opinions on certain things. It's like, if we all agree that Black Lives Matter, we can come together and rally around that. From With Good Reason, I'm Matt Dara. Serena Williams is widely regarded as one of the greatest athletes ever. Yet far too often, her passion on the tennis court is criticized as aggression. Why do Black sportswomen seem to attract more scrutiny than other athletes? Letitia Ingrazia Cardoso-Brown is a sociology professor at Virginia Tech, and she says the same commonly held stereotypes for Black women in society are also found in sport. Letitia, you've been looking at sports through a Black feminist lens. Help me understand what a Black feminist lens is showing you. Yes. um, For me, Black feminism is deeply rooted in the idea that the personal is political and that we cannot think of ourselves as Black plus woman plus middle class plus, but we have to think of ourselves as all of those things at the same time. And so studying sports through a Black feminist lens is my way of centering the experiences of Black sportswomen who were often left out of conversations on race, sport, and society. When did you first notice this? When, what were you doing when you first noticed Black women in sports and how they were overlooked and sensationalized at the same time? Hmm. I could tell that there was a difference in, for instance, um, coverage. Like I knew that my dad would always be watching the football game on this day or the basketball game on that day. But women's gymnastics was something that we only saw really during the Summer Olympics. And even the WNBA, when that was emerging in the midst of my childhood, definitely received less attention than the NBA. And it was always something that struck me as odd, but also something that was so normal at the same time. And then when you were a grad student at Texas, there was one runner who particularly caught your attention. Yes, South African runner, Castor Semenya. It was, for me, 2011. I was working on a paper for class and thinking about stereotypes that impact representations of Black women athletes. And Castor Semenya's story just really struck me. She had been winning and (laughs) doing so marvelously, and yet the conversations that were being had were that she had an unfair advantage or that she was too mannish to run with the real women. And that just kind of led me down this hole of, well, what is a real woman? And are we upset because she's so fast? Are we upset because she's Black? Are we upset because she's a woman? Or are we upset because of all of these things? And you've been looking at stereotypes for Black women in sports and have found that a lot of the stereotypes Black women suffer in society are also showing up when they compete in sports. Definitely. I mean, one of the most well-known stereotypes of Black women is that of the angry Black woman. If you're too assertive, too aggressive, too loud, then you're characterized as being an angry Black woman. And one of the sportswomen who has most been charged with this claim is Serena Williams. Her passion for the game gets translated into anger. 
And when we see white male tennis players engaging in the same or worse behavior, it gets reduced to, oh, you know, they're so passionate about their sport or even worse, boys will be boys kind of narratives that Black sports women aren't afforded the same courtesy. There's a hideous uh, political cartoon depicting Serena furious at the umpire at that recent match that she lost that really makes the point. It's Serena, supposedly. It's this exaggerated, large-framed, big-lipped, angry person jumping on a tennis racket and shouting. And it's supposed to be Serena. And I actually... um, wrote a piece about this, talking about how she was framed as being an angry Black woman during that match, as opposed to someone who just, number one, knows a ton about her sport. Number two, is extremely passionate about her sport. And number three, was correct in her assertion of what the empire was doing. There's some other stereotypes also that you think even more Black women are subjected to in sports, as they are socially. What are the more typical ones you see used in the media about female Black athletes? When I think about women Black athletes, I often think about this notion of mannish Amazons, which is one of the most stereotypical ways in which Black female athletes are talked about as being hyper-masculine and unfeminine or a femininity that exists outside of our binary understandings of masculinity and femininity. That's such a good point about sports really hyper-focused on gender and the assumption that women are sort of latecomers. And then as always, Black women are late latecomers, right? Exactly. And that kind of brings me to my thoughts when I was in grad school of Black women athletes as being sporting space invaders. So they're seen as invading these spaces that were at first, you know, homosocial white male spaces, like made for the purview of the white heterosexual man who had time to engage in leisure activity. And then we see the introduction of Black men into sport But the ways that Black men were characterized as athletes as being hyper-aggressive and hypersexual also shaped the way that Black women would come to be framed when they entered sports. While a Black male athlete who is aggressive and, you know, hypersexualized might benefit because it's okay for men to be angry and aggressive, especially in sports. And it's a, that's one of the only safe zones, really, for Black men to be kind of aggressive, right? But right. for a Black woman, because she's a woman and is supposed to be quote-unquote feminine, if she displays a similar amount of passion, you know, she gets dinged for it in the way of fines or in negative responses in the media, After last summer, athletes have been using their platform to advocate for racial equality like never before. But you say there's a long history of activism among Black female athletes that goes way back but is little told. Yes, definitely. When I think about activism in sports, one of the images that most frequently comes to mind were the 1968 Olympic Games in Mexico City. And remember, the late 60s, early 70s were a time of civil rights, Black power, feminist movements. And the American sprinters, John Carlos and Tommy Smith, who, after winning their medals in the 200-meter dash, were on the podium and raised their fists wearing black gloves as a symbol of, you know, their stance against racism and justice. And they received so much negative attention. But... During that same Olympic Games, the American sprinter Wyo Matthias was wearing black shorts in order to protest 
racism and injustice that existed in the U.S. and beyond. And it was also during that games that she became the first American, not the first Black American, not the first woman, but the first American sprinter, period, to win consecutive gold medals in the 100-meter dash. What activism actions are you seeing these days by Black sports women that is not widely focused upon? I'm thinking about Maya Moore, the WNBA player who sat out for multiple seasons at what was being called the twilight of her career in order to fight injustices in the criminal justice system in general and to free the wrongly convicted Jonathan Irons in particular. But when we talk about contemporary activism, the name that we most often hear is Colin Kaepernick. And Colin Kaepernick deserves to be talked about. I would never deny that. But Maya Moore, as an individual, and the WNBA as a league have long been standing for social justice issues and indeed dedicated an entire season to social justice. But we're not having these conversations as widely as we are having conversations about Black male athletes that are participating in activist movements and ideals. What could the rest of us do in a more active way to help remedy some of this? I think that we need to start thinking about players holistically, and we have to get rid of the narratives that exist by transforming, you know, sports as a whole. I'm thinking right now that we have to be more careful in the language that we use in general when it comes to athletes and especially Black women athletes. And I think that It's time that they receive media attention in the ways that are comparable to male athletes. I also think it's time for pay to change, especially among Black women athletes. And people might say it's just sports, but sports are a reflection of the society in which we live. So the injustices that we see happening in sport are the same that are happening in the society around us. Letitia Brown, thank you for talking with me and with good reason. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Letitia Ingrazia Cardoso-Brown is a sociology professor at Virginia Tech. Coming up next, upset alert in Munich, West Germany. At the 1972 Olympics, the USA basketball team had steamrolled through the competition to make it to the gold medal game against Russia. In fact, Team USA had been riding a streak of 63 straight wins, and it looked as if history was about to repeat itself. But what happened next was one of the craziest, most confusing upsets of all time. Chris Elsey is an historian at George Mason University. He says that 1972 basketball game opens a fascinating window into the Cold War tension between the U.S. and Russia. Chris, up until 1972, the U.S. Olympic basketball teams had never lost. Why were they so good? Well, I think one thing that needs to be considered is the game itself. It was invented in the United States in 1891, and American teams had had much success not only in the Olympics from 36, when basketball was first introduced as an official Olympic sport, but let's not forget, intercollegiately, right? The college game was immensely popular. Tell me about the U.S. team. Who was on that team? How old were they? Were there any superstars? Well, this was the, the, the great contrast, right, between the U.S. team and the Soviet team. The U.S. team was young. Uh, they were, you know, college kids, average age of 21 and a half or so, very talented, excellent college players, but they had only been playing together uh, really for several weeks. 
And on the other side, you had the Soviets, much older, probably the average age, I believe, was 27, 27 and a half. And unlike the American team, the Soviets had been playing together for a long while. How big a deal was this game, this basketball showdown between the Soviets and the Americans? How much of it was a proxy for the Cold War? Was it seen as capitalism versus communism, the free world versus the Iron Curtain? Oh, absolutely. You know, anytime the United States and Soviet Union competed in anything, let alone sports, but, you know, if you just think about the space race, right, it seemed that the uh, world domination was at stake. And in athletics, uh, it was the same thing. Also, uh, I think it's important for us to consider In 1972, this game between the U.S. and the Soviets took place toward the end of the Olympics. I think it was the penultimate day of the Games. And prior to that, there were many issues, most notably and tragically was the slaying of the Israeli athletes and officials. But also there were other concerns for American sports fans First and foremost was the dismal performance by many American athletes at the time. I think the 1972 games, the United States had its worst showing up to date concerning gold medals. Um, I think the Soviet Union at the end of the Olympics had won 50. The United States had won 33. And Americans were losing competitions and events they normally dominated. So all of this kind of flowed into that game. And, um, you know, you had the two best countries in basketball competing for the gold medal. So what actually happened in the game? The Russians won, but it was really controversial in the final seconds. Oh, extremely. You know, I, when I teach this in my class, I like to call it the greatest WTF moment in sport history. What what happened, the United States had trailed for much of the game, and toward the end of it, uh, they started to mount a comeback. They got within one point. Doug Collins intercepted the ball with about five seconds to go. He drove down the court. He was fouled as he went up for the layup. He was given two free throws. The Americans were down 48 to 49 at this point, and he made both free throws. During his second shot, the horn goes off. The Soviet player disregards the horn, throws the ball inbounds. The officials stop the game after two seconds have expired from the clock. They then try to reset the clock back to three seconds. Well, now, now you can totally confuse her. They're changing the clock is what they're doing. They're going back to three seconds is what the PA announcer said. The Soviet player is handed the ball by the official. He throws it down court. The ball bounces off of the backboard. Americans, thinking the game was over, begin to celebrate, patted one another on the back, jumped up and down. Uh, It was uh, an exciting moment uh, for these young men. Wow, what a finish for the United States. Winning their eighth consecutive gold medal. This place has gone crazy. But it wasn't over. They added three seconds onto the clock again. Yes, they did add three seconds onto the clock because if you watch the recording carefully, the official handed the ball on that first play before the clock had been set, reset, to three seconds. So the sounding of the horn was not to end the game, but was to get the official's attention that they were starting the game before the clock had been reset. Now we're being told the scoreboard is not correct. They are running the clock down as Hank Ivan comes to the bench to get the official count. The horn has sounded, and apparently they're going to move the clock back down to the three seconds that was indicated was official. And so in the final three seconds that were put back under the clock, the 
Russians throw a long pass from one end of the court to the other and score a basket? Exactly. Alexander Belov catches the ball, lays it in, and now it's the Russians' turn to celebrate. Bedlam erupts. Alexander Belov between two American defenders. Back there with him, Jim Forge and McMillan, and the Russian team has bobbed Alexander Belov. And this time it is over. You can see a pile of human bodies, the Soviet players, and then one of the player lifts up a bottle of vodka. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. How big a deal was this in Olympic history and sports history? Were the headlines huge? Uh, yeah, of course. You know, this was the U.S. against the Soviet Union. And if you add in the controversy surrounding it, Americans were devastated and the Soviets were ecstatic. Shirley Povich, the noted journalist, uh, wrote in his column, in the basketball finals, our Russian brothers browbeat the Brazilian referee and demanded and got what amounted to three final whistles. They used Russian terror mathematics to stretch the one remaining second on the clock into a useful six, then said they had just come from behind to beat the American team by one point. End quote. You know, with perspective, you realize there's so much politics in sports, right? Sports are a stand-in for so many of the beliefs and joys, divides and misbeliefs we all have. Oh, of course. It just casts those views in very stark terms. And I think this game shows that. One of my favorite expressions of American attitudes about this game uh, there was an editorial cartoon done in the Dayton Daily News, I believe the paper was, and you have an American reporter interviewing the basketball players after the game, and through each of the players' torsos are gigantic screws, and the reporter asks the players, other than that, how did you enjoy the Olympics? Um, so, you know, that, that gives you a sense, I think, of the American attitudes. But like I said before, I think the game just finished so quickly that Americans didn't have time to process this. And, you know, I've been into archives uh, and there were telegrams and letters from Americans, angry letters saying the Russians had stolen this game, that they had somehow conspired with the officials, much like what uh, Shirley Povich had said uh, in, in his column. Well, Chris Elsey, thank you for sharing your insights with me on With Good Reason. You're very welcome. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Chris Elsey is a history professor at George Mason University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason at Virginia Humanities. Many people think of the 1990s as the golden age of professional wrestling, and nothing captures the mystique of that era quite like WWE superstar Stone Cold Steve Austin and his iconic walkout music. Our next guest is Mark Wellett. He's an English professor at Old Dominion University and says professional wrestling's popularity during the 1990s reflected a perceived decline back then in masculinity. Mark, your interest in professional wrestling was actually sparked by your childhood priest. Tell me about that. Sure. That is, is kind of a fun story. Um, we had a wonderful parish priest, uh, Father Lanoon. and he's kind of a legend in our, in our area. I grew up just outside of Windsor, Ontario, right across the river from Detroit. And our priest, Father Lanou, used to, as a reward for altar boys, um, just occasionally say thank you. But he was a fan as well. And so he would load seven or eight or as many altar boys as could possibly fit into a giant 1975 Chrysler Imperial four-door. And he would drive us down. And the tapings were Saturday mornings in Windsor at the University of Windsor math building. Um, and so the wrestlers would come across the river from Detroit 
And Father Lanou would actually um, sit in the front row with all the altar boys, and he would give the wrestlers a blessing beforehand, and the masked wrestlers, <laughs> and even, even even the heels and the bad guys. Um, yeah. And so, so it was it was great fun to have as a, as a kid. Everybody knows professional wrestling is staged, but fans love that each wrestler has their own story or backstory. Help me understand how that has evolved. Sure. When I was a kid, the story was really, really easy. There, there were bad guys and there were good guys, or as they call them in wrestling, baby faces and heels. And a lot of the heels were really obvious. There used to be a guy in the, who wrestled frequently in the Windsor Detroit promotion, um, and his name was Hans Mueller, and he was a, a stereotypical sort of German World War II-derived figure like you'd see in one of those 60s movies or TV series like Rat Patrol. Very, very cartoonish, black and white good or bad. And Nikolai Volkov was a was a, uh, a Soviet, allegedly Soviet. There was another guy called Boris Zhukov, and he was allegedly a Soviet. And there was the Iron Sheik from Iran. And as, as it progressed, the stories got more involved. How did the stories and the characters develop after, let's say, the bad guys were typically first Nazis, then Russians, then Iranians? What evolved after that? Well, the next thing that happened was really in the 90s, there was a big trend towards what we call uh, serial downsizing in industry. And you, and you think about corporations at the time, like Enron, Merck, WorldCom, and the corporation went from this patriarchal institution where you could walk in right out of school and, and then walk out 30 years later with a watch to, we started to have the, the sort of the first tastes of the of the gig economy of people not working for long and serial downsizing and as we're having economic and social change partly wrought by technology we're we're also having this portray itself in in our popular culture and our entertainment so that the enemy becomes your boss and we see more and more movies uh, the Michael Douglas movie, Falling Down, is a great example of a movie like that, where the enemy is sort of this faceless boss or faceless corporation. And you can see it even in Rambo, where Rambo goes through and he destroys all of the monitors. And that becomes a big thing in, in wrestling, where the wrestler will run backstage, be mad at his boss, grab a television and smash it. And, it, it, and so the boss becomes the enemy. And wrestling gets to play this out in a really, really visceral, physical way that fans can relate to. So when all of these changes were coming about on the job place, you talk about the effect on masculinity, but it was making men feel what? The word that Susan Faludi in her big bestseller, Stiffed, The Betrayal of the American Man, she uses the word stiffed, that masculinity and men in, in North America had been sold a sort of, sort of a bill of goods. And they were now being held responsible for being told that they didn't have, in her words, a, a useful role in public life. And so there was a, a lot of sense of masculine diminishment. But on, on the other hand, Newsweek runs a cover almost on a 10-year cycle, crisis in masculinity. I have them on my um, <laughs> on my computer to show people. Like There was one that they ran in 99, there was another one in 2010, and there was another one they ran last year. And it shows me that America has a monstrous investment in masculinity. And the sort of success of a quote-unquote American man is, is part and parcel of the American project. And yet we know that increasingly there are fewer and fewer jobs that actually require that sort of built bodily masculinity. And it's going to get smaller. So describe some of the superstars of pro wrestling in the 1990s and what kind of increasingly complex stories were associated with them. Sure. Um, probably the two biggest ones became a guy by the name of Steve Austin, whose real name is Steve Williams. And he became sort of an everyman. Um, he hated his boss. He wore blue jeans. He drank Budweiser and um, used rough, coarse language, liked to settle things with his fists, punch first, ask questions later, that sort of thing. But he was also, you could see the way that part of the story became that his boss hated him, that he, he wasn't part of the corporate image that they wanted to project, at least as the story went. So the boss was out to get him and out to try and fire him and he was gonna be he was gonna be downsized. Um, the other one in the in the rival formation the in WCW was Ric Flair. And Ric Flair had been he's one of the longest serving professional wrestlers in, in history. He's one of the best known monstrous 
career of titles and all these other things, but a, a controversial figure. And he'd been known as the nature boy. And just like Austin had that connection with nature, the stone cold, and they called him a rattlesnake. Flair was called the nature boy because everything came natural to him. And he played the sort of glamorous playboy sort of figure. But he became this sort of older wrestler who was being pushed out by the new era. And that became sort of the, the way that storyline played out. So there is two rival versions of corporate machinations that were that were happening of trying to push undesirable people out of a job at the same time that there was this serial downsizing going on in contemporary life. How do the stories get spread? How do fans learn the stories ever evolving and ever more complicated behind these favorite wrestlers? Well, part of it was the internet. The rise of the internet happens at more or less the same time. And there was also the media coverage and cable played a big change in that as well. They became known as the Monday Night Wars, where there was rival primetime shows on Monday nights. And that was circulated by cable. And of course, WCW was owned by Ted Turner at the time. So they had that corporate power. And then there was also more coverage of it in mainstream and other press. And and kind of a funny story, well, by the time this happened, when I arrived to teach at a university, one of my students at the time, an undergrad, had started as a blog writer And then he got picked up by a national newspaper and ended up having a syndicated column online and in a national newspaper about professional wrestling. So it it became this sort of thing where there was this change in also media coverage that happened in the ability of fans to become more participants in the coverage. And that, that changed things as well. You know, some critics of pro wrestling call it hyper violent and sexist. And yet, You've written that that criticism actually makes wrestling even more attractive to its fans in many cases. How so? Well, we can see that in in a variety of ways. It plays out as in sort of an us versus them, that there's this group of perceived elites. And we we can see this. It plays out. I don't even have to make allusion to it, everybody will see that this plays out right now in, in contemporary politics, that there's a perception of an elite group that's out to keep a certain group of people and, and their quote-unquote everyday Americans down, and it becomes sort of an us or them. So, so the WWE in particular has used this to advantage to sell more tickets, even going so far as to stage a protest more than once that the WWE was going to be protested against by an an activist uh, social justice group and then basically having it staged and it became part of the show. So not only does it become part of the show, but it becomes, okay, we spoofed you. We've just made fun of you. You've made fun of yourselves. And it becomes in contemporary logic or vernacular of the day, it becomes, you know, trolling and owning to the nth degree. And it becomes part and parcel of that. That's so interesting. As I was reading about some of the staging that goes in with characters coming out to music and that sort of thing, it made me think of Donald Trump descending the escalator when he made his presidential announcement to music. Yeah, it, it, and and he's used this this sort of thing before. They've used um, uh, he actually pr- was a participant in WWE matches and events, um, and he's known as a as a friend of the McMahon family, which controls the WWE. And Linda McMahon, the matriarch of the McMahon family, was actually appointed to a governmental position by Donald Trump after he became president. So that connection is is a um, a strong and long one. It's interesting. Maybe maybe it could be like polling. As goes pro wrestling, so goes the political atmosphere. <laughs> there is there is some some truth to that, but wrestling fans are a lot more savvy, I think, sometimes than people give them credit for. They are very much aware of what's going on. It is a, a very media savvy audience, but they are looking to be entertained. That's the number one thing is they are looking to be entertained. If it weren't entertaining, people wouldn't go. Um, in 2007 at WrestleMania, Donald Trump was involved in the in the production of the of the show as a billionaire versus billionaire against Vince McMahon. And one of the highlights of the show for for a lot of fans was Vince McMahon getting taken down by Donald Trump. And then they, he did go into the ring afterwards, and, and uh, McMahon got his, his head shaved. 
It was a hair versus hair match sort of sort of thing, which is a classic wrestling move. Oh no! Oh no! Oh my god! Oh my god! Trump and Lashley shaving Mr. McMahon bald. Mark Willett is an English professor at Old Dominion University. Coming up next, a new sports drink that endurance athletes swear by, but does it actually work? After Elliot Klipchoji broke the record for the fastest marathon in 2019, Endurance athletes all over the world scrambled to uncover the secret to his success. Some found answers in the shoes he wore, others in the sports drink he consumed. Dan Bauer is a physical education professor at Virginia Military Institute and an athlete himself. He studies the hydrogel sports drink that fueled Elliot Klipchoji's record-breaking run. And Dan says the drink's effectiveness is inconclusive at best. Dan, over the last few years, people have gotten really interested in these hydrogel drinks, especially long-term sports. What is hydrogel, and what's a hydrogel drink? It's an interesting new supplement, and um, the primary ingredient that that makes it a hydrogel, or at least um, as is used in these products, is called alginate. Alginate is uh, mostly derived from seaweed, actually, for its properties to form a gel in certain conditions. So the interesting thing about it is you can design it to change form based on when you need it to change form. So, for example, if you were to put this in one of these drinks, you can drink it as a fluid, and then once it hits your stomach and hits the certain that level of pH, the more acidic environment of your stomach, it turns into a gel. And for, for many reasons, that's of interest to sport nutrition researchers because it can influence how it's digested. Do you ever do endurance sports yourself? Yeah, actually, I've, I grew up running and riding. I was a competitive cyclist for many years. I got into it when Lance Armstrong was at his peak. Obviously, things have changed since then, but it's actually sort of what drew me to this topic and research. Um, I always used to ride. You know, I was I was a decent rider, but I was very good for the first hour. Right. So I'd go out and, and pound up the hills for an hour, and I thought I was Lance Armstrong. But then every time I would become depleted, you know, of energy, and I would be like a different person. So when I finally started studying this stuff and I learned about how it works and how, how much carbohydrate one requires, and um, it changed my life. I could go from riding for an hour very hard to four hours, and I'm feeling just as good as I did in the first hour. So that was sort of an, an eye-opening experience for me, and it, it brought me into it. Well, the advice for long-distance runners and cyclists and others has changed so much over the years. When you were young, when you were on you know, an elementary school age team? What did they used to advise you eat? Um, I guess orange slices, if anything. Right. <laughs> I remember that at the, at the halftime at the soccer games. Yeah. But going back even further, so I, I'll give you the sort of um, the long story of it. So after the 20s, after the 30s, there became this um, notion that carbohydrate or even fluid during exercise should be avoided or minimized. So all the way up into the 70s, people consumed very little of anything, even fluid. And as you remember, you've probably seen the commercials, uh, Gatorade was developed in the 60s, but that still took a while to really catch on. And even into the mid to late 70s, there was still this resistance among um, endurance athletes to take anything. So uh, a good example of this is Alberto Salazar, who's one of the most famous marathon runners in American history. He used to be a incredible marathon runner. He would run two-hour, 10-minute marathons, and he wouldn't drink a drop of water, a, a drop of carbohydrate in any of the races that he did. And ironically, he almost died multiple times from dehydration and overheating. So from then on, um, research started to change in the 80s, and we started to see some studies come out that showed pretty definitively and consistently carbohydrate works if we consume it before and during exercise we can 
exercise for longer and faster and perform better. And what's the understanding of why the body needs it? Well, part of our bodies are craving that infusion of carbs. Carbohydrate is the muscle's primary exercise fuel. So any exercise of a moderate to high intensity, your your muscles depend on carbohydrate. The issue is our bodies are very good at storing fat. We can store, you know, 200,000 calories worth of fat in our body, but the average person only stores about 2,500 calories worth of carbohydrate. And so if you think about it in terms of a marathon, a good estimate for the metabolic cost or the energy cost of a marathon is about 100 calories per mile. So if you do the math, you know, 26 miles times 100 calories, you're at about 2,600 calories. So if the assumption is that you're primarily burning carbohydrate, because for most competitive marathon runners, they're running at an intensity where they're using carbohydrate as their primary fuel, they're coming very close to running out of it in that race. And usually when you hear the term hitting the wall, usually what that represents is that they are more or less depleting the carbohydrate that they have stored inside their body. And what's the recommendation of how people in, let's say, a marathon or long cycling actually ingest carbohydrates along the way, right? Right. The recommendation is, and this will get a little um, detailed, but generally they, they recommend between 30 to 90 grams per hour. So if you look at a typical Gatorade, um, the way that they have it mixed, I believe it comes in at around 30 to 45 grams per hour. Um, so if you're drinking a bottle of that per hour, you're, you're, you're pretty much right onto those recommendations. But they've changed a little bit in recent years in that now they're recommending closer to the higher end of that range, so closer to the 90 grams per hour, which is quite a bit, and it's pretty concentrated doses of carbohydrate if you haven't tried it before. And where does your body primarily absorb this the quickest? It's absorbed through the intestine. So it's actually pretty rapidly absorbed as well. So if you consume carbohydrate while running or cycling, you'll usually see it um, appear in the blood uh, if we're measuring it within 10 to 15 minutes. So it's something where if you you are starting to consume it early and often, it's going to provide an alternative fuel source throughout that exercise. And hopefully help you to um, either provide, as I said, an alternative fuel or to even help you save the fuel that you already have so that you can save it till the end of the race for that final sprint to the line. When did you first start to notice that friends of yours and other athletes were really interested in this idea of drinking hydrogels? I think for me, it was um, the thing that's drawn most people to this product is um, Eliud Kipchoge, who's probably the most famous runner in the world right now. Yeah. He just broke the um, two-hour marathon record by running 159.40, which is a, a 434 mile times 26 miles, <laughs> which is, you know, arguably up there with Roger Bannister breaking the four-minute mile in terms of athletic achievement. So that's going to draw all the attention in the world. And then you combine that with the fact that he was apparently consuming this hydrogel substance throughout. And obviously the the company that makes it contends that it helped him in his race. It definitely warrants excitement and um, research. When you decided to do an experiment, what did you set up? So we set up an experiment with cyclists and we set it up with three experimental trials where they would come into the lab and ride on the bike for three and a half hours and basically torture themselves for three and a half <laughs> hours. We'd be feeding them this stuff from before they started and then every 15 minutes of exercise. And throughout, we were measuring their metabolism, so what fuels they were using. We were measuring their energy demand or how, much, how many calories they were burning. We were measuring their gastrointestinal comfort, which is key uh, with this product. And that's sort of their selling point that it's supposed to enhance how it feels in the stomach. Um, and then obviously, we measured their performance to see whether there were any differences between them. And so what we did was we compared the hydrogel product to a... Um, sort of traditional mix, which is just a glucose combined with fructose. Those are two simple sugars. Um, and it's usually what you'd find in something like a Gatorade. And we found there was no difference between the, the two. Even though that's what you discovered, were any of those cyclists still interested in continuing to use the hydrogel liquid? 
Yes. And like I say, a lot <laughs> of it comes down to personal preference. You know, if you, you find something that you like, and, and really this is, this is good advice for anybody that's looking for sport nutrition advice. If you find something that works for you and that you like, keep doing it. And especially if you believe that it works, right? If there's a placebo effect occurring, even if it's a placebo effect, it's still benefiting you. But the other part of it is the product is still, you know, the hydrogel is the, the added ingredient that's very interesting, but it still contains carbohydrate in the exact same amounts that you would want. So it's still providing you what you need. The question is whether that added alginate hydrogel is actually providing any effect at all. Is there any pressure, do you think, on scientists to fudge results when a product is this popular and first comes out? Yes, I think definitely so. And that's one of the, the things that we have to deal with as scientists is, you know, companies want to work with scientists. And a lot of that, you know, sometimes that's genuine interest in scientific innovation that they're seeking to do. And other times they're trying to get sort of a rubber stamp on their product to make it more appealing to, to the general public. Um, but also as scientists, the way that incentives are set up now in academia, you know, there's certainly incentives for people to publish exciting research that has positive effects um, that are definitive. And especially if it's, if it's something that crosses over into popular culture, um, like products like this does. That's fascinating to me. Dan Bauer, thank you for talking with me and with good reason. Thank you. It's great. Dan Bauer is a physical education professor at Virginia Military Institute. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients. UVAHealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer, Cassandra Deering, and Dante Woodfolk are our interns. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>